0: Well, there's always going to be a difference between your own personal inflation rates based on what you're consuming versus what the CPI baskets of goods is is trying to measure.
1: This month on Ebb and Flow, we talk about the I-word, namely inflation, a topic on every investor, economist and Fed governor's mind these days. I'll admit we get somewhat wonky as we explore the definition, the history and the forecast for inflation in the aftermath of the government's economic battle with COVID-19. To tackle this tough subject, we've gone to the top and recruited Long River Wealth Management friend and collaborator Jason Dreho. Jason is the head of asset allocation for UBS here in the United States. To this enormous job, he brings many years of experience in market research and analysis and a PhD in economics from Yale University. So please stay tuned for this slightly deeper dive into the intricacies of the very important topic of inflation. I'm Paul Leeming, and welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Jason Dreho, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here.
1: So, Jason, let's start with some review for those of us without a PhD in economics, myself included. Can you give us the high-level definition of inflation and tell us why it matters so much?
0: Well, first, in terms of the definition, inflation is really trying to measure what is the kind of price of a basket of goods today versus, say, 12 months ago. And the idea is that if we take that basket and say, well, the price last year was $100, and this year it's $102, it's 2% more expensive, that's inflation. Now, there's different ways to kind of construct that basket of goods. There's different ways to kind of measure it. So, you know, we often hear about things like consumer price index, TPI, that's one form of inflation. There's other measures that have been constructed. They're all trying to capture the same idea, though, that is given a basket of goods, how much of their prices increased over a period of time, whether it's one year, one month, six months, whatever you might want to kind of measure on, usually measure on a year-over-year basis. So that's really what inflation is trying to measure. It's also trying to measure the rise in prices for goods and services that we consume. So things like whether we're buying gasoline, food, clothing, getting a haircut, restaurant meals, travel, all these kind of things, education, you know, you can kind of consume that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include buying assets that you can buy and hold. So stock prices are not part of the inflation index. That's asset price inflation as opposed to kind of goods and services price inflation, which is important to kind of keep those distinctions in mind. They're often sort of lumped together, including housing prices. That's a different thing because you're buying an asset. So when we speak of inflation, we're really talking about the inflation for the goods and services you consume. So that's kind of what roughly inflation is trying to measure and capture. Why is it sad or why does it matter so much? Well, inflation or if our prices are going up a whole lot, that obviously means people effectively feel poor, you know, because suddenly unless your income is going up as much as inflation or even more, then you're actually your wealth. Is going to feel kind of lower because your money or your purchasing power doesn't kind of go as far as it did before. So it matters in terms of just your overall standard of living, whether it means over the course of one year, but also if you're thinking about saving for retirement and you have a fixed amount of assets, if inflation is high, then your purchasing power in the future could be lower. So that's that's a negative, you know, just for you individually. It's also, you know, a challenge because it creates uncertainty for the economy. When prices are going up a lot and there's uncertainty of the, the outlook, that usually isn't sort of a disincentive for companies to invest. Therefore, it can be negative ultimately for economic growth. This materializes, it could also lead to you know, tighter policy. You know, the Federal Reserve might look to raise interest rates to cool inflation. If they do that, it also ends up slowing the economy and then risks going into recession. So inflation is a is a big focus right now, you know, because of the purchasing power aspect to it, also because of maybe the uncertainty rates for the economy overall going forward. And then third, because of, well, does this mean the Fed is going to have to raise rates that could slow the economy and potentially kind of trigger a recession some point down the line? So it's clearly quite significant for multiple reasons.
1: Interesting. And I'd like to get into sort of the current debate over inflation in just a little bit. But before we get to that, Jason, I'm going to ask you to take us back into history. I believe you've met... Our founding member on Long River Wealth Management, Tom Lips, and you know he's a student of history and has encouraged all of us in the investment context to learn from history. So, with that in mind, let's talk about some inflationary episodes in our history. You know, one often hears about the '70s in the U.S., or we could go abroad and talk about you know the the phenomenon of of wheels of uh, you know, wheelbarrows of currency being used to pay for a sandwich. So. You know, What can we learn from some of the standout inflationary events in our past? And maybe adding to that, what's different between then and now?
0: So in terms of looking at the U.S. itself and sort of our, our own history here, you know, you mentioned the 70s, which is kind of the default example that people go to because since the early 1980s, inflation has either been on a steady decline declining process Or it actually got to a very low level, and it's been very low really for the past 20 years, but especially the past 10 years prior to the pandemic. So there's just not a lot of recent historical examples of significant inflation, the 70s as being the most prominent. And even to look at the 70s, you almost have to go back to the 1960s and see what sort of parallels exist in the 1960s to today, and what can we potentially learn from it? And then prior to that, you're starting to talk about inflationary periods, whether it's in the Great Depression or prior to that, which... The challenge of looking at those periods is that, you know, the U.S. economy today is so much different than it was back then, mm. both in terms of, you know, the nature of business, you know, how we kind of live our lives, what we kind of consume, the policy differences, that it's really it's almost dangerous to look at those periods and draw inferences from today. Mm. So within the U.S., we're really kind of confined to this one period starting in the late 1960s and 1970s. And certainly there's, there's kind of pullbacks to that. I think, you know, there's, not too many investors and, you know, even frankly, people who are old enough now to, to really remember what that was fully like to having gas prices going up along lines in this sort of speculation environment, which I think the, the good thing is that there's enough differences today, you know, between the, you know, the economy today versus of where it was, you know, 50 plus years ago that suggests, you know, things won't repeat. For example, you know, energy prices were going up a lot in, in the 1970s. We're seeing oil prices and, and you know, gas at the pump going up today, but the amount that people spend on gas or energy overall, as in terms of their overall kind of consumption basket, is is quite less. Mm. And the U.S. economy is also much less energy intensive. You know, so we produce. let's say a dollar of GDP requires far less energy today than it did 50 years ago. Which means even as oil prices go higher, its impact on inflation in the U.S. economy is, is less today. Another difference is, you know, the dynamic between sort of wages going up and prices going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the issues back in the nineteen seventies is that you would have, you know, like say union contracts or wages that were indexed to inflation, and you would get these kind of spirals, or when it's such that prices would go up, so wages would have to go up as a result. That would cause prices to go up, that cause wages to go up, and back, you know, kind of you know, it becomes like this perpetual motion machine. Mm-hmm. Today, we just don't have the same kind of dynamics in the, in the labor market with Wages being so tied to inflation, you know, unionization is much lower. The government contracts may not have those kind of you know, features. So, that dynamic is just less kind of ingrained into the system. It doesn't mean that they can't work to some extent. And we're seeing this anecdotally how wages are going up and that can fuel higher prices, but not nearly to the same extent that was institutionalized attack in the 1970s. And another thing is the Fed, in you know, how it conducts monetary policy today, is different. And really, the biggest thing is. It's starting in 1979 with Paul Volcker being made the Fed chair, basically induced a recession, a pretty significant recession in the early 1980s to get, get rid of inflation. And then we went on a 20-year period where inflation declined. Mm. And then we've had a 20-year period where inflation has been very low. So the Fed today has good inflation-fighting credentials. And as a result, inflation expectations are still pretty well anchored, even with the recent rise in, of inflation the past few months. Unlike in the 1970s, where the Fed's inflation credentials weren't as established, mm-hmm. so things can kind of get out of hand much easier, much more quickly than they they can or they should today. So there's those are some pretty significant differences, you know, today versus before. If we look outside of the U.S. in terms of other examples, you know, you mentioned the idea of like people walking around with wheelbarrows full of money to go and buy goods. Right. You know, this is happening whether it's Venezuela, you know, Zimbabwe, even maybe Brazil in the 1990s. Kind of their scary stories, but, you know, these are very different economies. These are emerging markets, but they've always kind of lacked some of the credibility of the institutions. So I think using those as comparisons, to me, it's a bit misleading because, you know, we're not going down that path. I think looking at something like, maybe we're underestimating our ability to kind of replay what happened in the 1970s. I think that's the right sort of parallel to look at as opposed to you know, those other countries. And if you look at other developed markets, it's been sort of a similar story to the U.S. of inflation in the 1970s. But we've gone forty years of very low inflation. So it's just there's not a lot of good benchmarks today or comparisons, which is does make it a little bit more challenging because we're to some extent we're kind of flying blind and that we haven't had a really good recent example of a comparable economy to the US that's experienced inflation to say, Well, this is how it played out, these are the you know the issues involved. So we're making assumptions which we hope are correct and certainly policymakers are hope are correct, right. but only time will tell whether they are correct.
1: I'd say that the key takeaway from what you just described and are the differences between the 70s and today and and also that this period, this prolonged period of, of relatively low inflation since the end of that of that inflationary period in the 70s. And there are lots of theories, some of which you've mentioned as to why that was the case and why that has continued to be the case. and, and you'll hear people refer to secular headwinds to inflation, and you talk about things like globalization automation, e-commerce, demographics. These are all sort of the winds that have been blowing in the face of inflation, certainly over the last decade, if not longer. My partner, whom you've also met, Ashley Martella, sent us all an article yesterday on our team from the Wall Street Journal. It was authored by Gwyn Guilford. And, and it talked about some of these trends reversing as a result of COVID and other factors. It mentioned protectionism and the onshoring of supply chains as a counterforce to that globalization trend, an increasing component of the population not working, and therefore consuming more than they're producing, etc. Do you see the forces that have kept inflation in check for the last decade abating because of COVID?
0: So I think some of them are probably going to abate, at least on their own, to some extent. Mm-hmm. you know, but let's start with kind of globalization and, and why it's being sort of so disinflationary. Globalization, however you want to exactly define it, but you know we're talking about production moving around the world, you know global trade increasing at almost double the rate of GDP. So trades become and economies become much more reliant on trade. We've seen businesses look to the lowest cost manufacturing basis to produce their goods. Mm-hmm. and they've squeezed almost every last dollar they can out of their supply chains. A lot of that production has gone into China, but it's also spread into whether it's Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, you know, so around the world. Mm-hmm. As a result, we've been able to kind of rely on very sort of cheaper production. Some of this, you think about it from a you know, basic input model. In the US, we have even shifted you know, production to very low cost labor economies. And China, in particular, has over the past, what, 20, 30 years, experienced this mass migration of labor from the countryside to the coastal areas to work in manufacturing plants. Right. And that's been essentially a really positive labor supply shock that's kept wages lower and it's kept the price of the goods lower. So if you look at the past 20 years, the price of goods, like the CPI for goods, is actually negative. So whether it's an iPhone, whether it's a T-shirt, things like that, physical goods effectively have gotten cheaper over time because of kind of globalization. In contrast, services, what you really can't rely on production abroad. Like I can't get my hair cut in China; I have to get it, you know, I'm going to get a cut in, in Manhattan. That price has kind of gone up. So goods have gone cheaper. Services, those prices have actually gone up more than inflation. Mm-hmm. With globalization, whether it's due to the pandemic and companies deciding, you know, it just we can't have supply chains solely dependent on China. We have to maybe bring more production here. All sequel that should mean, you know, higher production costs or at least less of a tailwind of kind of production costs is declining. But even prior to the pandemic, the trade tensions between the US and China was already kind of you know, starting some of that. And even prior to that, over the past decade, globalization, we've sort of kind of already kind of gone almost as far as you can, like you've kind of, you know, relocated, you know, business elsewhere. So I think the tailwind of globalization being disinflationary, that's been true for certainly for 20 years, it's probably still a bit of a tailwind, but not nearly to the extent as it was. And there's a possibility that it could even go from being a tailwind to a bit of a headwind. In terms of disinflation or meaning it could be a tailwind for inflation going forward Mm. and other factors you mentioned such as e-commerce whether it's e-commerce for the past 10 or 20 years or big box stores in the 1990s whether it's walmart or costco bringing prices down we think that maybe that's run its course but if you think about the pandemics led to a lot of very rapid change towards sort of digitization of different business models i think that's kind of brought some prices down so i think though though some of those forces will continue going forward so they may not be as strong as they have been. So when we get into what's maybe different today versus the past 20 years, some of these disinflationary forces, they exist, but they're probably not as blowing as strongly as they were. And if anything, maybe some could even slightly reverse to be a bit of headwind. Mm-hmm. The other key thing that is, I think, contributing to some of the inflation today is there's also been a policy kind of maybe paradigm change that after focusing for so long on like fighting inflation. Not really, and using monetary policy to fight recessions or growth slowdowns without fiscal policy, we've seen this pandemic sort of change where there's been massive fiscal stimulus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the Fed is, and the U.S. has cut rates, but they've just they were already so low that it had much of less of an impact. So going forward, we could see much more reliance on fiscal policy, you have to fight recessions, but even in terms of like you know, potentially having more infrastructure spending. So if we have a more active fiscal policy to manage the cycle. Well, the Fed is going to keep rates low to kind of accommodate that fiscal policy, that could actually be a combination that ends up being more inflationary as opposed to disinflationary. So it's only the the regime of where inflation becomes more of a risk, that could be a consequence of the policy dynamics being just very different going forward over the next decade as opposed to what it's been for really the past 20 years, and you could even argue for the past 40 years.
1: Hmm. Well, we could talk about that one point for another whole podcast, so maybe we'll do that someday. But for now, let's jump ahead to sort of where we are today, bringing this this conversation to the present. Obviously, there have been signs of inflationary spikes of late coming out of COVID. I can speak to one of them, i.e. lumber, as someone in the process of building a house. So th- the question, of course, is if these spikes are going to be temporary or here to stay. What's your view on that, Jason?
0: So I think if you look at the different of goods we could buy and so what's driving some of these inflation numbers. And even today, we got the, you know, the June inflation number and it was a, yeah, another another significant increase, exceeded expectations. So it was up 0.9 month over month. On an annualized basis, it's now 5.5%. But if you look at what actually went up, and again, it's, it's really concentrated in the areas that are, are a handful of goods that have been rising recently, like used cars, were up another 10%, mm. which is accounts for like a big chunk of the overall increase in inflation. We know that at some point in time, like auto producers are going to be able to ramp up production. There's going to be more cars available. And the increase in used car prices today is going to slow. And in fact, even maybe a year from now, we'll be talking about kind of disinflation from used car prices. Mm-hmm. So we know certain goods, that, that's the case. You mentioned lumber as an example. And it definitely got a lot of notoriety earlier this year, like even maybe about two months ago, when lumber prices were up like 200% year over year. I actually just heard this morning that lumber prices now year-to-date are actually flat. So they rose a lot, and now they've kind of come back, mm. not to where they were like a year ago, but they've retraced a lot. And we don't we don't kind of hear much about that. We hear about when the prices are going up. And as a result, like some of the bottlenecks that existed in lumber supply are, are easing. So a lot of areas where we're seeing significant prices going up, some of those will abate. You know, other areas like airfares are going up because people went a year without flying. Prices right. dropped a lot last year. And now people have been vaccinated, and suddenly they want to travel and take a vacation, without the airlines ability to kind of ramp up production quite as fast or supply as fast as demanded there. So I think there's still good reason to believe a lot of what's going on with inflation right now is is just temporary, and whether it abates later this year or certainly next year, it's gonna we're gonna get the reverse effect where if prices do moderate, it's actually gonna be a drag bringing inflation lower. The real concern or the question is things that are not sort of being distorted by the pandemic but are more cyclical in nature. Will those inflation pressures build irrespective of what happens when some of these supply chains normalize? And so will they keep rising? So a year from now, or at the end of 2022, will those measures be higher? You know, something like housing costs or like the way it's sort of measured, like, you know, rental costs. Mm -hmm. Will those continue to rise? Because those are 25% of the impacts. Those tend to be sort of move with the cycle. So as you get further into the cycle, those become sort of more inflationary. those rise and then you know the outlook for inflation maybe is that this is not so temporary that inflation could be elevated because of these only cyclical forces whether that happens or not that's still to be determined but i think there's the risk that those could persist in a way that they could at least negate some of the temporary factors that should be gone you know 12 months from now
1: and the other risk that obviously i think you mentioned earlier and that the markets are are watching is is the fed's reaction function to all this i wonder if you would just sort of comment on how you think Jay Powell and the Fed is thinking about inflation, whether it's transitory or, or cyclical.
0: Well, they've been very loud early on saying, we think this will be infl- uh, or be transitory. And that was their view back in sort of the February-March timeframe before inflation really started to rise, which we all knew would rise certainly in the second quarter just because you're taking prices in the second quarter this year versus where they really kind of bottomed out. So we knew just kind of mechanically with the way inflation is calculated that it's gonna jump in the second quarter, which it did. So the Fed has always kind sort of thought that's the case, but and a lot of these issues were kind of more temporary supply chain disruptions. You know, the example of lumber, it could be semiconductors, they still think that's gonna be temporary. When the Fed talks about sort of transitory, their horizon is not three or four or five months. They're thinking twelve to eighteen months. Because what they're thinking is that well, do we want to change our policy based on inflation? And they know that Changes in monetary policy take time to work through the economy, nine, 12 months, maybe longer. So if they think this inflation is only going to last for 12 months and then it drops off 12 months from now, they don't want to be tightening policy to get rid of inflation that they think, well, it's not going to be an issue 12 months from now. Mm. So I think that's been their view, and I think that's why they've been sort of maintaining a very dovish stance because ultimately they think this won't last. Now, if inflation numbers continue to surprise to the upside, and if there are signs that sort of the cyclical inflation that I mentioned are actually building, that may force them to act a little more quickly. I think in June when they had their FOMC meeting, and they kind of came out with a bit of a hawkish surprise, suggesting that you know there could be two rate hikes in 2023 when before they were basically sort of suggesting there would be none. That took the market by surprise, and also suggested the market and there's certainly some members of the Fed. Who are a little more concerned about inflation than say, than Jay Powell's, who would lean more on the side of being, this is transitory. So as we move forward, as we get more data, as we see how the labor market recovers, this could be one of the key dynamics in the next few months in terms of is inflation not kind of coming down as they anticipate of force them to be maybe a little more aggressive than, than the market was thinking, and even maybe they were thinking three or six months ago. Still to be determined, but I think what you're seeing in the markets is some sort of like thinking that they may have to be. doesn't mean they will be. It all depends on on the data, and they're very, at this point in time, let's call it data dependent. So instead of trying to forecast where they think inflation is going to go, they're now in the mindset of, let's see how it plays out. We'd rather overshoot and then have to sort of tighten down as opposed to be too proactive and then actually cool the economy when it wasn't necessary. Because that was their approach for a number of years. You could argue that even back in like 2000 or 2018, 2019, they were raising rates really when it wasn't necessary and they kind of learned from that situation.
1: So they're sort of letting the economy run hot. I think it's the term that that you hear people talking yes. about. So, Jason, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears here from the lofty halls of the Federal Reserve to to our own living rooms and kitchen tables. So, I hear people often say the following line: they'll say, "Everyone says inflation's low, but it doesn't feel that way to me." Right? And they're talking about maybe it's the price of gas, maybe it's the price of tuition, or healthcare. And so my question, I guess, is around how this is all measured. I mean, the government measures inflation one way, and we all perceive it through our own lens. So can you talk about this disconnect?
0: Well, there's always going to be a difference between your own personal inflation rates based on what you're consuming versus what the CPI basket of goods is, is trying to measure. Because what they're trying to capture through these inflation gauges is a representative individual you know, consuming a representative basket of, of goods. And of course, there's almost no one who's gonna look like that representative investor or or consumer. But what they're trying to do is to say, like, well, if you look at the economy overall, how we actually spend our money, what's where does money go in terms of you know buying shelter or getting sort of you know shelter, whether it's renting rent an apartment or you buy a home and you have to pay a mortgage, mm-hmm. it is healthcare. That's a big part of the economy, it's over 15% of the economy. So you have healthcare expenses, which depending on your age, you may be very low or it could actually be significant. Same thing with the education. If you have a child in university and you've seen prices go up high single digits for a number of years, you think, well, this inflation is not low. It's actually quite high. But that really only applies to people who have kids of a certain age. And if you don't, well, then that become, doesn't become part of your basket. Mm-hmm. So there's always a case where people tend to not look at the whole overall kind of pie. They focus also on like what's relevant to them. They also focus on the things that they sort of see on a day-to-day basis, such as the price of gas, the cost of certain you know food items. Or if it's real estate, they kind of look at housing prices going up and think, well, clearly this there's a lot of inflation. Again, that goes into when you buy a house, you're buying both shelter, a good you're consuming on a day-to-day basis, but you're also buying an asset that a few years online you can sell and get your money back and maybe even more. Mm-hmm. So you always have to like, kind of disentangle what you're for to kind of actually have a roof over your head versus the assets you're buying that later on you can sell. Mm-hmm. And so really it's that kind of shelter component that, that really matters. So there's there's often this. Measurement disconnect just because what we care about individually versus what the Fed is going to measure is they're not going to align exactly. And there's also maybe the bias where we kind of overemphasize a handful of goods that we're buying on a regular basis and maybe discount the fact that your premium, your deductible on healthcare hasn't gone up very much because you don't really think about that on a day to day basis. So it's important just to kind of get a broad perspective of where your expenses are, just thinking that, you know, for the individual perspective. You always want to have your financial plan for long-term and think about, like, well, what are my expenses today, but what are my expenses in the future, and how will they evolve, and what could the prices of those goods be going up over time, and then thinking about, then well, how do I manage my portfolio for that? The numbers are, can be surprising. You can kind of overreact to it, but then you're going to have to take a step back and then think about, like, well, all right, what does it really matter for me in terms of my purchasing power, not only today, but going forward, and how do I have to respond to that?
1: Right, and and you know that is something that obviously we do with our clients every day to think about the spending that that they will conduct over the course of their lives and and sort of trying to project that, keeping all these things in mind. But Jason, I, I have one last question for you, and this has to do with sort of your credentials that I listed in the beginning of this. I mean, you are the head of asset allocation for UBS. Chief Investment Office here, here in the Americas. So you're, you know, the guy making recommendations that impact, in theory, trillions of investment dollars. So how are you allocating assets to protect against the possibility of inflation right now?
0: So yeah, you know, it's a question I get all the time, and you know, often people ask, you know, "Should I be buying gold or chips or some other assets to provide that protection?" I think it's important to make you know take a step back before you start to buy any single particular asset you think that will give you some sort of hedge. But one is to think about you know, this whole discussion you just had regarding, you know, is inflation is it transitory or not? What is the outlook? So from an investor, if you if we believe that this ultimately is going to be mostly temporary, the way we sort of think about our portfolios instead sort of adjusting them is like based on that sort of view, which over time, as we get more information, we'll make adjustments for it. But it does mean sort of like taking a almost like a bit of a dynamic approach, or least to be kind of active in terms of like, are we sort of allocated properly for the inflation environment that we think is going to materialize? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to go and position entirely for higher inflation. It turns out that doesn't materialize, and then things don't go your way, and your portfolio will suffer as a result. Right. So that's one thing. is, is it, The current position always for us reflects a view of what we think is the base case scenario with some potential you know, opportunities to, to protect against inflation. And so some of our position right now is the view that inflation will be transitory, but it could stay elevated. And if, if that does materialize, we should see higher interest rates so that it you know, favors in some way that kind of value stocks, financials, things like that, which you know, that's kind of where we lean in with some of the portfolios today.
1: Well, Jason, obviously, you've given this a lot of thought and you've given us a lot to think about on the subject of inflation. So on on behalf of my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella and Paula Rose and, and our whole team at Long River Wealth Management, I want to I want to thank you for uh, being such a good friend and collaborator of our group and our clients, and and also for your views today. So thanks very much for being here.
0: You're welcome, man. It's great to be here.